AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikogli, and with me, as always, is my lovely co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. And in this week's episode, we're honouring International Women's Day on Sunday by chatting with advisory board member and history maker, <laughs> Lisa Lotov-Perlo, who in 2014 became the first woman to run a major cruise line when she was appointed as president and CEO of Celebrity Cruises. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Oh, my pleasure. It's wonderful I really appreciate, to be here. I really appreciated that little chuckle at History Maker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know, it's funny because, and I chuckled because it's a headline that we recently used for International Women's Day. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, to kick things off, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you first got into the cruise industry and what that first job was, because you've been in the industry for most of your life. <laughs> most of my life. I've been in this company for 35 years, uh, and I was in the travel business for one year before I came to the cruise industry. And that's how my career in travel started. And it was born of my introspection about what was the rest of my life going to be and what career did I want. I was floundering. I was in the hotel business uh, where I'm from, which is Massachusetts, and it just wasn't fulfilling me. The properties got pretty small pretty quickly. There were some other things going on, and I just said, you know what? It's time for a big change. What am I going to do? I was reading the, I'm going to date myself now, although saying 35 and 36 years is pretty much doing that for me, but I was actually reading the help wanted sections of the Boston Globe and this job, I found this job that seemed interesting and it was a cruise travel specialist for a company called Crimson Travel. That's how it started. And what was that first job like? What were you doing? What made you realize that this was what you were supposed to be doing versus what you were doing with the hotels previously? Well, it wasn't a great start for me. It was cold calling. It was trying to get people to want to travel together as a group. You know, it took a really long time for them to make a decision. They'd make a decision. They'd change their mind. And so it was somewhat frustrating to me. But what I did realize while I was doing it is I really loved this cruise thing. It was pretty cool. And the salesperson at the time for Royal Caribbean came into our office. We were the biggest crimson office at Government Center, and he came upstairs. I was at the cruise desk, just happened to be there that day because usually I wasn't. And he said, I just got promoted. I'm moving to Miami. 
if any of you are interested in my job, send your resume. And so I thought to myself, and I'd only really been there a year. I, th- I probably wasn't really qualified to apply for that job, but I did anyway. And um, I was first rejected. The person that they picked instead of me didn't work out. He didn't even make it through his probationary period. And when I found that out, I just went all in and just you know kept going. And that's where I started. And now here I am 35 years later, 30 years. Uh, it took me 30 years to become president and CEO of Celebrity. What was your takeaway from that first early experience of rejection? Oh, my goodness. Everyone has that, that experience. Yeah. In my career, I've actually had a few. Um, so uh, I think what I would say about rejection is you need to use it as fuel and motivation. And sometimes we become resentful when we are rejected. And I did as well. But I used that in a positive way. And I didn't let it derail me. And I didn't let it veer me off the course that I knew I wanted. My husband, I've been with him since 1983. And he often told me to give up. <laughs> Quite often. No matter if it was an idea, a dream, buying a house, advancing in my career. And it was born out of the fact he didn't want me to be rejected. So it came from a good place. But even that fueled me. And um, and here I am today. So he said, always tells me, thank God you don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a good sort. He is a good sort. <laughs> Um, When you started, did you have any sort of mentors in your office in those early days? Were there any women in particular who stood out as really helping to um, kind of like create a ladder for you? No, none. But I did have and I, I probably in my career have not had a lot of mentors, but I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of really important sponsors that have advocated for me and helped me achieve the things that I wanted to in my career and believed in me and Actually, they probably believed in me more than I did. They challenged me. They took me out of my comfort zone. They moved me around when I really didn't want to move around. And one uh, gentleman in particular, Dan Hanrahan, who was the previous president and CEO of Celebrity Cruises, often jokes with me to this day because he and I are still friends. He was the one who first moved me out of sales, which was my passion, my love. That was my only ambition to be the head of sales. And he... At a certain point in my sales career moved me from sales to marketing. Another derailing or I thought was a derailing situation in my career. And to this day, he asks me, how did that work out for you? Because it was just the beginning of me really moving around, moving up, moving between brands, and really gaining all of the experience, uh, not only in terms of our business, but also leadership, taking on bigger and bigger roles, um, understanding our complex business in a really powerful and meaningful way, which all contributed to me being where I am today. So uh, he was the first, and then our chairman, uh, Richard, was the second. So I've had two really amazing men uh, advocating for me. But what I realized, when because so many people ask me that question, is I didn't have any women sponsors or advocates. And so when I was appointed to this role, I wanted to make sure that I did that for other women because I know how important it really is. And it was a great opportunity for me and also a responsibility. To that point about sort of not having women mentors, when you were starting to climb up that ladder, were there visible women in senior positions or 
did they just not really exist? I don't think they really existed, which is probably why I didn't have any women advocates or mentors or sponsors. And I just think it was just the part of the reason that I have to answer no to that question. I think it's very different now. Um, and, you know, if I talk to the women that I work with and um, in leadership positions, there are quite a few in our company all across the spectrum of our business. Uh, and they as well advocate and sponsor for uh, for women. But in when I was coming up, if you will, um, there really weren't, not in my industry anyway. When I think you look at the airline industry and the cruise industry, and now in 2020, the leadership roles are so different because there are so many women who are in high senior leadership roles in the cruising industry, and there is still only one woman recently appointed to be the president of an airline. Um, what do you think it is about the cruise industry that now, today, might lend itself to being more equitable? Well, I think that timing is everything, right? And, you know, I think about our women on the bridge, and I know we'll talk about that in a little while. But what ends up happening is, in order to get into these positions, at least historically and most often, you need to start somewhere to get somewhere. And it takes time to start somewhere and get somewhere, especially in industries that have been predominantly run by men for so many decades. And I think all of these industries, uh, and I know we're talking about travel, but I look at the automotive industry and I look at all the new CEOs of car companies. And, you know, you look at the new uh, CEO, Cheryl Miller of AutoNation, which is the largest automotive dealership in the country. And there are women now getting into these positions where historically there never have been. And that's because more women are getting into these positions. More women are working their way up through these organizations. There's more opportunity, still not enough by any means, but you're starting to see it happen and you're starting to see women break more and more of the glass ceilings where historically you haven't been able to see that. Moving away from gender equality for a moment. Just yes. a moment. Yes. No, I'm, that's okay. I can talk about some other things too. Because <laughs> I could talk about it all bloody day. Um, sort of a lot of people say like, oh, I really, really, really want to find a job that will let me travel. What came first for you? Was it the travel or the job? The job. Yeah. You know, I loved the industry and it just so happened to be in travel. And the more and more that I travel, the more and more I realize, you know, with a few bumps along the way, like this morning, how wonderful it is and just how grateful and privileged I am to travel not all, only all over the country uh, and to this great city, but all over the world. And, you know, I realize more and more every day how people who don't travel are missing the most important part of humanity. And that is engaging with other people who aren't like you, learning new cultures, trying a new food, learning a few new words in a different language. It helps us grow. It enriches us. It makes us better human beings. And it will make for a much better and peaceful planet. And, you know, there are a lot of people who understand that and do that and know that. And, you know, for me, my job is to convince more and more people they need to be open to travel. And um, and I try to use my own experience and my own philosophical view about it as part of the motivation uh, that I use when I'm talking to people about traveling. 
sort of talk a little bit more about that. How do you, you know, I think there are a lot of people for financial reasons or fear of the unknown or, you know, whatever, feel that travel isn't accessible to them. How do you convince people to get over that hump? Well, what's interesting to me, let's talk about the accessibility part first. As I look at travel and I look at the cost of travel and I look at how that's even changed over time, there are so many ways to travel from the most minimal of budgets to really, you know, high budgets and, you know, it it doesn't matter how much it costs. So that's really, I don't believe it, an excuse for people not to travel. And I always believe where there's a will, there's a way. And one of the things that I love about the younger generations, and I go all the way down to my nieces who are in college, is they want to travel. They care about more about doing things and experiencing things. They don't care about, like, me buying a house or buying a car, blah, blah, blah. They're just all about, let me get out there in the world. Their, their view on diversity is amazing. How they view life is amazing. And so that's really encouraging for me. So in terms of accessibility, you know, I, I just think people aren't looking hard enough because it's there. And in terms of fear, that's that for me is that's the worst reason because I just think fear is born out of ignorance. And I think people owe it to themselves to be more aware and think a little more deeply and really ask themselves, what are you afraid of? Because I've traveled to so many parts of the world where people think that they should be afraid either of the people who live there or the things those people stand for or what's going on in that part of the world. And Every single time I have, it's, it's, I, I've, you know, I realize that what people think and the reality are two different things. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. How many days now do you spend on the road? If I look at the next two months, way too many. Um, Probably 60 to 65% of my time over the next two months will be on the road. It's been an easy start to the year, but it's all it's all in now. Last week when we were talking uh, about business travel, you were saying that you try to cram in as much as possible into your schedule, i.e. showing up here an hour after you've <laughs> landed. Um, See, perfect example. And that it's it's starting to feel maybe a little bit untenable. How do you intend to maybe create a new work-life balance or... What is your perspective on on how that's been working for you over the last five years? So sometimes I don't. Well, I always have a choice. We all always have a choice, right? Today was, you know, one of those days where there was no way I could get here last night because of commitments. I really wanted to be here today with all of you. And I have a commitment this afternoon on a on a panel. um, And then I need to fly back tonight because I leave for Europe tomorrow. So, you know, sometimes I just have to cram it all in. And I, and I will continue to do that. Where I don't have to cram it all in, like I'm going to Europe tomorrow night, and it was very funny that you mentioned that because the woman that I will be spending a lot of time with that works with me over in um, Europe said to me, I know you get angry when I cram it all in, too, <laughs> when I cram you up too much, Lisa. I said, yeah, Joe, thank you. Um, and so my my issue is mostly 
just continuing to work with the team that I work with because, you know, when I show up places, the um, desire is to have me do as much as I possibly can because I'm not able to get places as often as people would like. So I try to balance and respect that and be a good sport about that. But then I also realize I just have to take some me time and um, and not try to do more than is humanly possible. And sometimes I even I forget I'm human. You know, you mentioned that what you put into your schedule is ultimately a choice. Uh But I think, you know, when you're really ambitious, especially as you're working your way up in your career, it often feels like you have to say yes to every single opportunity that's Mm -hmm. thrown at you because if you don't, it will be given to someone else. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, I often feel that pressure more. How have you kind of reconciled with that over the years? Is it a constant learning process or have you managed to figure out how to say no to things? You know, it's um I know that that's reality. For me the the motivation has been different than thinking if I don't do it someone else will maybe in journalism or you know in your line of work certainly that's a concern as as you think about that and I think for me it was always when I started a new job leading the operation, I always felt like I really needed to get on the ships as much as possible because 90% of our employees are on the ships. And so I would just go, go, go. Now, and especially when I started this position, I really wanted to go all, you know, I wanted to just go all in. And so I was just everywhere, everywhere. As I've gotten more comfortable, as I have gained more experience, and I think, you know, this is this applies to all of us. You know, I've I've basically now said to the team that I work with, here's the request, you filter it. If there's something that I see that comes my way and I'm like, oh my goodness, I really want to do that and have to do that, I will tell them that. But other than that, it's like, you decide, look at my calendar, assess the opportunity. Do I really need to be there? Is it make or break for our business and our brand? And if the answer is no and um, crammed all around it, just say no. And I think if I apply it back to um, maybe some women who say, I really need to do this because it will go to somebody else, I think that, you know, confidence comes with experience and feeling like you're, you're really doing something well. I think women have to get beyond that. I I think it's women are too hard on themselves. And, you know, part of that's probably the imposter syndrome, right? Where you think, oh, maybe I don't deserve this job. So if I don't do everything, you know, someone else will get it. And I I think women should not burden themselves with that any longer. I think it's funny when you said earlier that you thought that you weren't qualified for that first job, but you applied anyway. I feel like that started very early for you, (laughs) skipping that step. Hey, listen, they say always apply for a position you're not quite ready for because, and you know, men do it all the time, right? (laughs) It's only women who really don't think that they're not qualified for a job that they're applying for. And we see it all every day. So, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything that everybody doesn't already know. What is one piece of advice that you would give to that young Lisa when she was starting out in the cruise industry? You know, I think about that often as I reflect. And the one piece of advice I would have given the younger Lisa is to get out of your comfort zone and don't suppress your own ambition. And when I think about when I came into this business, I was in sales for 17 years and I held every 
progressive position there possibly was with the only and ultimate ambition to be the vice president of sales. That's all I wanted to be. And I felt like that was a very big aspiration for me. And I was working my way toward that. And I thought everything was in place. The man that I worked for was like, oh, yeah, when I'm not here anymore, you're it. And then all of a sudden, my you know world went crashing down or the rug was pulled out from under me when I was moved from sales to marketing. Because then I said, OK, the only ambition I had has now been taken away from me. And so I had to reframe my ambition. And I had to do it on multiple occasions throughout my career. And my advice would be, you know, aim high. The higher you aim, the further you'll go. And rather than feel either disappointed or rejected along the way. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. And, you know, you were lucky enough to have a couple of mentors that really told you it was possible and gave you great advice and could kind of see your potential maybe at moments where you couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. Were there other people that you came up against who were like you're aiming too high or you're kind of stepping into a room that you're not welcome in? It was probably more the former than the latter. You know, it's nice to have been in our company. I'm welcome in a lot of rooms, but at a certain level. And I think there were a lot of people along the way, including my current boss, who is my second mentor and also appointed me to this position five years ago, but he told me no three times for this position. And he, you know, just didn't believe in me as much as I believed in me. And I really had to keep continuing to prove myself to him in a different way. And one of the things that he said that was really interesting when he's interviewed about me on rare occasion is that, you know, people will say she says that, you know, she asked for this position three times and until you finally said yes. And he said, that's true. And he said, but I remember how she handled it. And she let me know exactly how she felt in no uncertain terms, but she did it in the most professional and positive way. And then left my office and basically said, I'm just going to prove him wrong. And she did. And he said, and I really respected that about her. And it actually made him pause and say, maybe I'm wrong. And he gave me every opportunity to prove him wrong. Uh, And I've spent most of my career trying to prove people wrong. And so, again, that's motivation. And I was giving a, a talk at a Girl Scout luncheon. And I said, I used a lot of my resentment in my career as motivation. And I think that's okay. A bit of anger can be very helpful. Right? (laughs) 
just a little bit. Just, just a, a little, little bit. bit. It's a healthy Ever dose. Ever so slightly, yes. <laughs> Ever so slightly. So now that you are in the position that you're in, you have this incredible platform that you've used, as we talked about a little briefly earlier, to really promote gender equity and gender equality within your cruise brands. How are you using your platform now as president and CEO to enact that change for future generations of women and men coming into your business? I was having a conversation with a senior vice president, a woman who works with me the other day, and we were talking about the gender equality uh, issue that I've, you know, really tried to champion. There have been two back-to-back write-ups in a cruise publication where I have been included in that publication as a not only champion, but someone who really walks the talk in terms of gender equality. And one of the things that she and I agreed on is it found me. I didn't go looking for it. And I never thought about my gender in my career. And when I was finally appointed to the position, and even before that, when I was rejected, I never thought about it in, in terms of my gender, just because it's not in my usual psyche. Maybe it should have been, but it wasn't. And when I when I um, got the position, my phone rang a lot, and I was really surprised by it because my colleague, a couple of doors away, is a gentleman, and he got the same position at even the bigger brand, and his phone really, you know, wasn't ringing so much. And I realized it was solely because I was a woman who had the first woman to ever become president and CEO in our industry, the first woman to be in the C-suite in our company. And that was that was such an anomaly that my phone was just ringing like crazy. So I turned that little annoyance um, and, you know, it was pretty overwhelming. And I internalized it and thought, you know what, if this is such a big deal, I'm going to make it a big deal. And I am going to be the advocate for women that no one was for me in an industry that has very few women. You know, the maritime industry has 2% women. That's terrible. Uh, But I had an opportunity in the position that I now held to really make a change in that regard. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years. How has that kind of like come to fruition on the ships themselves? Uh, Well, we have so many more women in leadership positions across both sides of our business, both hotel and marine, which are the two operational sides of our shipboard business. But I think the biggest change that we've seen is that 3% of our crew on the bridge used to be women, and it's up to the mid-20s now. You know, we hired the first American woman to ever be the captain on a cruise ship, the first woman from Ghana, Africa, to ever work on the bridge of a cruise ship. Uh, we have been steadily increasing the number of women on our bridges over the last three or four years. And the thing is, is when people hear 3% to 22%, that's that's a big jump. But I don't think people understand how big it is because there are so few women opting into the maritime industry that when you can go from 3% to 22% across 14 ships in your fleet, that's a huge accomplishment. And you have to be very focused, disciplined, and purposeful about that. What are some areas that you feel like you haven't been able to make such big jumps yet that you're kind of looking ahead, really going to try and focus on? In engineering. Uh, A lot of women on the nautical side of the business, captains, cadets, first officers, safety officers, chief officers, uh, chief of security, but 
I would just love so many more women in the engine rooms. Uh, and that's our next, uh, we've just hired three. So uh, we're starting. Um, and that's and that's now another uh, another effort, just like we did on the nautical side of the business a few years ago. We're starting in earnest uh, on the engineering side. Well, and I'll link this in the podcast notes. But last April, we talked to Kate McHugh, who is the woman that Lisa was talking about earlier, the first American woman to captain a cruise ship. Um, she's amazing. You should follow her and her cat on Instagram as Absolutely. well, which I will also link <laughs> in the show notes. Um, Lolly, what else have you got? And so, you know, as we mentioned at the start of this podcast, it's International Women's Day on Sunday and it's Women's History Month. What do you have planned? We have something very big planned, and we're really excited about it. We've been celebrating International Women's Day for a few years at Celebrity. We have been doing some amazing things across our fleet with all of our guests. We, we did it with the Red Shoe Movement, Ring the Bell on the Seven Seas, and I would always show up on a couple of ships, and I was just so impressed by the number of our guests who participated and how our crew really loved it, men and women. And it was really heartwarming for all the men to come up and thank me for what we were doing, uh, all that we were doing for women. And this year we thought, you know, it's 2020. We've been working up on our gender equality for so long. What could we do that, that everybody would say, wow, that is huge. And so the team came up with an idea that we would be the fir- history-making, barrier-breaking, first-ever all-female bridge team to ever sail a cruise ship. And on March 8th, Captain Kate McHugh, who we have lovingly talked about, will be on the bridge with Nicolene from Ghana and an entire bridge team of fellow officers that are women on Celebrity Edge for the March 8th cruise. And then we also have an entire leadership team across the entire operation of the ship that are all women. And we have a great lineup of women guests as well that are just great in their field. And so, yeah, so we're very excited about it. It's going to be a huge celebration. And that cruise is just virtually sold out as soon as uh, people found out about it. It was something that they really wanted to be on, which was also really nice to see. You know, we thought people would really rally around it and love it. And and they really have. And um, where's the cruise going? The Caribbean. I'll be on. I can't wait. I'll be on for most of it, not all of it. Um, But we're, we're very excited about it. Yeah. So if people want to follow you and your journeys on the internet, where can they find you on social media, Lisa? They can find me on LinkedIn, of course, and then they can find me on Twitter, Lisa Lutoff Perlo, uh, and no hyphen. Perfect. All one word. Amazing. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm at Lale Hanna. You can find stories about Lisa, about Captain Kate, and more at womenwhotravel.com. And be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram for updates on our trips, our meetups, our live podcasts, and everything else we're doing to celebrate International Women's Day and Women's History Month. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.